0: I'm just going to say it now. Go Vikings. I can get an amen for that. You hear it from the back? You're like, ooh. <laughs> uh, it is wonderful to see you all. Uh, I want to say welcome to all the families that are here for the baptism. It's so great that you've chosen to be here for such a special day. Um, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. And if you're watching online or if this is your first time here, thank you so much. Being here, I truly am grateful that you chose to be here this morning, of all places. Uh, You could be sleeping in. (laughs) It's cold outside. (laughs) Um, If you are looking for a church home, or you're looking for a a family to be a part of, we hope you'll consider being a part of what God is doing here. Uh, God's been doing some pretty cool stuff over the last several years, and continues to. Uh, We're a 150-year-old church, and to see God still moving in fresh and new ways is pretty awesome, isn't it? Can we just give a thank you to the Lord, because He is good. I also want to say thank you to all of our regular church attenders, those who call Zion their home, and thank you for your generosity, um, your financial, your spiritual gifts, all the things that you do. The reason why we're able to be the church we are is because of the people here. It's not because of the staff. Uh, The staff are here basically to kind of spearhead, but all the work and the stuff that comes as a result of the faithfulness of people who call this their home. So thank you. It really, uh, I'm... Continually blessed to see how God is moving. Uh, we're going to start things off a little bit differently this morning. We're going to get right into God's word. So, would you stand with me? And uh, we're going to, it's a very short verse, uh, but it's a very important one. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's read it all out loud. This is it. This is the whole verse. So, I'll give it all the gusto. Here we go. Ready? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord, praise be to God, you may be seated. Um, so we're in our second week of a new series called Solas. And, and I got to be honest, I was a little nervous starting this because my heart, I'm a teacher at heart, not a preacher. And, and the difference between the two, teachers are all about bringing information. Preachers are about stirring the heart. And I love teaching. I love teaching God's word. I love seeing eyes open up, and it's kind of a cool thing, and I, I wish some of you could understand what it's like to be in my position up here, because you can visibly sometimes see the aha moment in people, when all of a sudden, something from God's Word clicks, and they're like, oh, oh, I get it now, <laughs> and the difference is, is that this series, we start off talking about history, and, and my staff, there was, those were at Sermon Read-Through, and my close friends, I was a little nervous, because I'm like, do people, one, do they really care about the history, of where we came from and why it applies. And what was encouraging, as I heard from so many different people, they had no idea the rich history of Lutheranism. But more importantly, not just Lutheranism, the Protestant Reformation. The church that we are today is because of a 16th century German monk named Martin Luther who took a stand. And last week we looked at that, and and instead of rehashing all last week, and we're going to get a little bit into it, I'd encourage you, listen to last week's message. Um, Here, kind of what the basis of the sola. Now, sola is the Latin word for alone. Everybody say alone. See, that's the teacher in me. i got to make sure you're with me. Um, If the Apostles' Creed is the foundation of our faith, the five solas, the five alones, are the pillars built upon the foundation of what it means to be a Protestant Christian. Now, the word Protestant comes from the word protest. Everybody say Protest. And, and I'm not talking like 60s protesting. It's it's more of a, a challenge to constantly be reforming. Now, last week, we looked at our first sola, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And we looked at what led to what became the Protestant Reformation, what sparked this whole thing that changed the entire landscape of the Christian world. Now, if you haven't yet, again, I'd encourage you to go onto our app or onto our website. Listen to last week's message. But... Um, I want you to think about this for a second. My daughter last week, uh, she came up to me, she goes, and and I'm, for young, you want to plug young kids' ears so they don't ask questions. My daughter, Indy, came up to me after we talked about Martin Luther, and she goes, Dad, I had no idea Luther was such a B.A. If you don't know what a B.A. is, you can figure it out. And then proceeded to ask me if there were any really good books on Martin Luther, and there's a wonderful book that I'd encourage you to read if you're more interested by Eric Metaxas called Martin Luther. The Reformation started not as a rebellion against the Catholic Church. In fact, Martin Luther never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. He believes in a united church. He believes that the church should be one, that that is the best witness for the church. But he began to see issues, and it started with Luther wanting to spark a theological debate around a conversation because of a a decision that Pope Leo X made. Now, Pope Leo X was kind of a corrupt pope. And what he did is he instituted these things called indulgences to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica, which still exists today. It's a beautiful structure. And essentially, because of this, he began by nailing uh, a s- 95 statements to debate called the 95 Thesis. How many of you have ever heard it before? Maybe you were here last week. That was your first time hearing it. The first sola, sola scriptura, or scripture alone, is grounded— in Luther's challenge that as Christians, and I want you to hear this, okay? This applies to all Christians, that as Christians, our authority, we submit to Scripture. Whether you're a pope, a priest, a pastor, every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus is under the authority of God's Word. Can I get an amen? So whether it's me or another pastor, or another Christian, or even the Pope himself, if what is being preached from the pulpit does not align with God's Word, you should be asking questions. But here's the first thing. That assumes you actually know God's Word. And this was part of the problem. Now, Paul himself actually praised uh, a community called the Bereans because when Paul came and preached the gospel... They did something that a lot of people, including today, didn't do. They went right to the Old Testament to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. Paul himself, the great apostle, the one that were like Paul, they did not trust that just because he said it, it was true. Listen to what it says, Acts seventeen eleven. 11. The, the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Since they received the word with eagerness and examined the Scriptures. The Scripture it's referring to is the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. They did this daily to see if these things were true. Now, there's a challenge that we as modern Christians now have, and here's what it is. Just because something is said from this stage or any stage or from the interwebs or social media or from a book or from a popular teacher or from Oprah Winfrey doesn't matter Where it comes from, first we have to ask, does it line up with God's word? And if it doesn't, what does that mean? Now here's the beauty of this, and and Zion seeks to be a place where you don't have to believe to belong. Literally, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have doubts. Some of you in this room aren't even sure if you believe in the Bible or believe in Christianity. Maybe you're exploring, and I want you to hear this. It is okay that you have questions. It's okay that you're wrestling with Scripture because, let's be honest, is Scripture always easy to understand and read? Resoundingly, the answer is no, especially the Old Testament. And so we ask these questions, but here's what it means for us and what it means for me, for you, and for us as a church community. Scripture alone means we need to know and love God's Word. It needs to be a part of our daily lives Because the goal of the Bible is not to help you better have more knowledge, but to help you better know God, the author of Scripture. That's its goal. The goal of the Bible is that you might know God's heart for the world, for you, for His own glory. And in order for us to better connect with what we're going to talk about today, see, last week was Scripture alone, I need to bring us back to briefly talk about The practices of indulgences, which I'll explain again if you're not familiar, I'll walk through it. But before I do that, I want to make it abundantly clear, okay? While I disagree with my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, with the theology of the Catholic Church, I do believe they are Christian and that many of them love Jesus. And so I want to do this with all dignity and honor and acknowledging that my Catholic brothers and sisters, I love them. They are my family, and, and nothing breaks my heart more than when I meet Christians who make fun of or question the heart of my Catholic brothers and sisters. Because I know many of them who love Jesus more than many Lutherans do. Because at the end of the day, it's not about being Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist or non-denominational. It's about being a follower of Jesus. Amen? And we get so hung up on titles and positions and the type of denomination that I think we miss God's heart. And this is the thing, they agree on the most fundamental things. That's what the Apostles' Creed is. The Apostles' Creed is the fundamental things that you must agree on to say, hey, I'm part of the church rightly. The Protestant Reformation is built upon that. Now Catholics, again, we disagree with each other, and these disagreements do matter. They are not minor, they are not small, but I want you to hear this. There are things within the Lutheran Church that are not right. Just like there are things in the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church, the Charismatic Church. No church is perfect. Can I get a preach it, brother? (laughs) None of us are perfect. We're not. Uh, In fact, I'm going to share a little dirty secret. Martin Luther, who was the head of the Reformation, was an anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. But here's the thing. We don't follow Martin Luther. We follow Jesus. And he had his brokenness just like all of us do. And so we take the good, we take the bad. You take them both, and there you have the facts of life. <laughs> Children, there was a show called Facts of Lives. <laughs> you could tell everybody that's like 40 and over, like, I know that song! Now here is where the difference becomes. Our primary difference is in our understanding about what it means to have faith in Jesus, God's grace, and salvation. That's pretty big. That's a, a pretty big difference, and it's a chasm that for me, it's the reason why I'm not a Catholic. My heart breaks, as Luther's did, that I wish we had a unified church, I wish we didn't have all the different denominations, but those areas of disagreement exist for a reason because we don't, the scripture's not as clear as we want it to be on things, and so we, we can debate, we can disagree, but just like family members, anybody here perfectly get along with your family? We can disagree, not always get along and still be family, Amen? Sorry, I'm going to ask for a lot of amens because I'm insecure today. Leave me alone. (laughs) Here's the thing. Catholicism teaches that while Jesus died for our sins, they believe this. They believe Jesus died for our sins just like we do. And that we are made holy by God through Jesus. Here's the difference. In Catholicism, we are not yet perfectly holy in God's sight. We need to partner with God in order to fully realize our salvation. And once you understand what this means, the difference is you're going to go, oh, that is pretty big difference. See, here's the thing. They believe that you are made right by Jesus, so Jesus' death did accomplish something. However, you still have sins in your life that need to be dealt with, and there's the ramifications of sins, and, and so they say you have to do good works. You have to do merit-based things to become holy before the Lord, to become righteous. Here's another way of looking at it. Catholicism teaches that belief in Christ opens the door for us to be saved, but you can, and you only have access to heaven because of Jesus, but you must still work with God's help through the church to be saved so that you can one day get to heaven. In other words, Jesus is not actually enough. And this is a pretty big deal. And it's also why I meet so many Catholic brothers and sisters that are always living in some level of fear, especially uh, asking the question, did I do enough? Did I say enough confessions? Did I do enough Hail Marys? Did I pray enough? Did I do enough good deeds? Now, they still believe they're going to heaven. It's this in-between place called purgatory that they're nervous about. Now, we do not believe in purgatory. Again, Catholics believe Jesus died for our sins, but they add a caveat, which is this, is that we still have a sinful human nature that needs to be dealt with. Jesus did not change our nature in Catholicism. And according to Catholicism, our human nature still needs to be changed before we can get to heaven. And the only way you can do this is you need to work towards doing complete, becoming completely righteous through your good deeds and through what are called sacraments. Everybody say sacrament. Okay. Now, in Catholicism, uh, again, I want to make sure I'm not poking fun of. This is historical. You can go to Catholic websites. You can see the research yourself. This is not me making things up. This is part of their view. Uh, In order to become righteous, you need an infusion of grace. And this grace helps you become morally righteous, or what's called to be justified before God. So you are declared holy before the Lord because you're in His family, you're in the Son. Um, However, what you need now is to have an infusion of God's grace, which is provided by the church, so that you can become morally right with the Lord. So you're almost there, but God still has work to do before you can get to heaven, okay? Now, here's where the biggest issue, that I f- the first issue I take, is that they will say the only true church according to Catholicism is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters will not acknowledge us as the true church. The Roman Catholic Church is the only true church according to Roman Catholicism. This is why if you've ever been to a Catholic wedding or a funeral and they do Uh, the Eucharist, you're not allowed to take it because you're not actually Catholic right. You're not in good standing. You're not part of the church. Here, we believe anybody can take the Eucharist or what's called the communion because the body of Christ is available to all. It has nothing to do with being Lutheran or going through confirmation. It has to do with the grace that we believe comes with it. Now, the second is this. They believe Christ is in the Roman Catholic Church and the church is in Christ. Thus, the Catholic Church is God has been installed as God's mediator between the world and himself. Now, I'm going to show you why this matters, and if you've ever watched TV shows or if you were raised Catholic, maybe you don't know this. There are things about Lutheranism I didn't know until I studied it. There are things about Catholicism you may not know until you study it. No one has direct access to God except through a priest. That's the Catholic teaching. You actually cannot pray directly to God. He won't hear you. You have to have a Catholic priest and and we're going to get into why they pray to saints and what that actually means you're going to find that most of us here don't actually understand what it means to pray to saints it's actually not what you're thinking now this is a big deal but they also teach that god has provided several ways and this is a grace thing this is why they call it an infusion of grace that God has provided several ways to become morally righteous. So he's not leaving you out on your own. He's not saying figure it out. He provided these things called sacraments. And a sacrament is when God takes a natural thing like bread and wine or water or a good deed, and he infuses it with supernatural power to make you morally right, to deal with the brokenness, to deal with your sinful nature. Now, we as Lutherans do not believe this, um, we still believe in the sacraments, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit because I do believe sacraments exist, but for very different purposes. This is what Luther was dealing with. Uh, Catholicism teaches that the church provides the sacraments as a channel to God's grace to his people to help them become righteous so they can get to heaven. How many of you remember layaway plans? You remember layaway? Okay, layaway plans different than a credit card. A credit card, you buy it and you pay for it later. In Catholicism, or a layaway plan, it functions more like this you've got the you've got heaven heaven is available to you however you have to keep on paying on it until it's completely paid off and then you can get to heaven and the way you pay for it is if you die before you've done enough morally good works you go to this place called purgatory purgatory is the middle state the middle place that you go and the thing that G, that Martin Luther kind of uh, originally what he dealt with is he actually didn't question purgatory that was part of catholic teaching he didn't Uh, question most of the things. It was this practice of indulgences, which again, I'm going to get to in a minute. Now in Catholicism, there are seven sacraments or means of grace, but there were three that were central to Luther. There were three that Luther was really concerned about and were a challenge for him. The first was baptism. Now we believe in baptism, we do baptism, we just had a baptism, okay? Um, Which they believed that in baptism, the waters of baptism wipe your sin clean. One theologian put it this way, It was believed the waters of baptism were so powerful that if you died immediately after you were baptized, you would go straight to heaven. So if you got baptized and then you died, boom, straight to heaven because baptism washed away all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your sins. Now this is a problem because what happens when you're baptized as a baby? You got a whole life ahead of you for most people that you now have to deal with sin. Now, here's where uh, this began to become a a challenge, is if the only sins and guilts that are removed in the waters of baptism are the ones that were done beforehand, what happens to the rest of us? Or we just had two or four babies, two babies this service, two babies next service that were baptized. They now have to deal with and work off the sin that is the result after you're baptized. Does that make sense? This is also why in Catholicism, they're so afraid. What happens if a baby dies before it's baptized? They're afraid it's not going to go to heaven. We don't believe that, by the way. We do not believe that you baptize a baby so that it goes to heaven. Um, I believe that a baby goes to heaven because we have a sovereign and good God. That's it. I don't need the waters of baptism to secure that. I have the character of God to secure that. Amen? Uh, Second is communion. Communion, or what's called the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is the body and blood of Jesus. When Luther was around, and still today, Catholic priests would withhold communion, and they still withhold communion, but they believed that it was an infusion of grace. But there are reasons why you can't take communion if you're divorced. If you're divorced in the Catholic Church, you are not allowed to take communion unless you get an annulment, which you have to pay the church for. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, If you're not in good standing or if you're not Catholic. But the third sacrament is the one that most of you will recognize is very different from us. Uh, Since the cleansing of waters of baptism can only happen once, what do we do about the sins we commit after our baptism? Well, this is why in Catholicism, the confessional booth is so important. So you have communion, you have baptism, and now you have sin. And so what you need to do is you need to do what's called reconciliation or penance. This is the the confessional booth. So you would go in to the confessional booth, and you'd start off, you have to show contrition. There are three elements of penance. First is contrition. You need to show that you're sorrow, that you're sorry, and that you feel guilt over your sin. Okay, so that's the first one. The second is then you have to confess to a priest because, again, only a priest has direct access to God. You don't because you are not a leader in the Catholic Church. So you have to go to a priest from the church, and the church then can forgive your sin. And then he does what's called absolution. Absolution is where the priest will release you from the guilt and shame of your sin. Now, this is different. We don't do that here. We believe that any one of us has has direct connection to God. Now, here's the third part, and this is probably the one that you're like, oh, I, I've heard about this. It's called satisfaction. The third part is that a priest, after he absolves you, after you confess, after you show confession, uh, contrition, he now assigns you a task to pay off the debt of the sin. You need to say seven Hail Marys for our fathers. You need to fast for a day, or you need to give alms to the poor, or you need to do an act of charity. This is how you deal with, with your sin now. It's not about Jesus, it's about you. Now here's what's crazy. Baptism, communion, penance, good deeds, or or these acts of charity and the other sacraments, they were viewed as merits that earned towards or, or paid the debt down towards your righteousness so that when you die, you would spend less time in purgatory, the middle ground where you have to make up for it. Now while this may seem strange to us, who were not raised Catholic. How many of you were raised Catholic? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're hearing this going, oh yeah, I remember this. Okay. Luther actually had no issue with any of these practices. He didn't. He never challenged baptism or communion or purgatory. These were never, Luther had no question about these, and here's the reason why. During the medieval period, the time of Luther, there was only one game in, cha- in town, the, cath- the Catholic Church. You didn't have the Baptist church down the corner. You didn't have the non-denominational. You didn't have the Methodist church across the street. You had the Roman Catholic church. And if you disagreed with the church, you were usually executed for being a heretic. So Luther, this was the only view that he had. In fact, this was the only view most Christians had. And those who challenged it again were labeled heretics and burned at the stake. Now, millions of Catholics, my brothers and sisters in Christ, still believe this today And I still call them brothers and sisters in Christ because at the end of the day, they believe in Jesus. What saves you is not having right theology. What saves you is Christ. Because all of us have broken theology, myself included. Now, our view of God, how many of you believe, I'm going to ask a question, how many of you believe that God is loving and kind? Raise your hand if you believe God is loving and kind. Okay. Uh, How many of you believe he's gracious and merciful? Raise your hand. How many of you believe that God wants a relationship with you? Raise your hand. Imagine living in a world where none of those things were on the table. Where God was not seen as loving and kind, but as harsh and full of wrath. Where the only relationship you could have has to go through the church. So yes, God wants a relationship with you, but it has to go through somebody else first. So really, he wants you to have a relationship with the church so that you can kind of have a relationship with him. Now, again, we talked about this last week, up until Martin Luther, the only people that were allowed to even read the Bible were priests and scholars. There was no Bible translated in the German language and the people's language. You had to know Latin or Greek. So they had no way of challenging it because the only ones who had access to God's Word was the Roman Catholic Church. So that you couldn't question it, and this included Luther. Luther never challenged these things because this was all he knew. Now, this is where fear becomes an interesting tool. Listen to one quote from an author, Paulo Coelho. If you want to control someone, all you have to do is make them feel afraid. Let me say that again. If you want to control someone, all you have to do is make them feel afraid. And we have a God who says perfect love casts out all fear. When you understand God's love perfectly, which here's the thing, I still don't understand his love perfectly. Perfect love casts out all fear. And yet this was not taught and is still not taught in many churches, not just Catholic. I know a lot of Lutheran churches, Baptist churches, non-denominational churches that use fear as the motivator to keep people in line. So that's not unique to Catholicism. That's a power dynamic. It was fear that actually brought Luther into ministry in the first place. Here's a fun fact about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a deeply fearful man. He was terrified of God's wrath. Terrified. He was studying to be a lawyer, and he was actually doing very well. And one day, he's on his way from, uh, I think he was at a class or something, but he's heading back to Wittenberg, and he gets stuck in this horrific lightning storm. And lightning bolts are going around. And uh, Now, again, they didn't understand lightning the way we do. This was God's wrath, and literally, a lightning bolt almost struck him, and he hid inside a barn, and he prayed to a saint, St. Anne, okay? Uh, St. Anne was believed to be the grandmother of the Virgin Mary. There's no biblical truth for this. It was just historically taught. And so he prayed to St. Anne, and here's what he prayed, essentially, is, God, if you deliver me from this, I won't be a lawyer. I'll become a priest. Now, let me clarify. What you may not know is that they do not pray to saints as if they're gods. That's not why they pray to a saint. In fact, the reason why they pray to a saint is they believe that if someone is a saint, they've ascended purgatory and are now directly in the presence of God. So when you ask a saint to pray for you, it's because that saint has God's ear, not because they think that saint is a little God. It's no different than when I say, or when someone comes to me and says, Jason, will you pray for me? They just believe they're asking dead people to pray for them because they have God's ear. The reason why they pray to Mary is, who has God's ear better than God's mother? Well, the son of God's mother. God himself has no parent. He's always existed. Now, that helped me because for years when I'd hear about Catholic brothers and doing Hail Marys, I'm like, why are you worshiping Mary? They're not worshiping Mary. They believe it's, again, it's their way of how do you get God's ear because you don't have it. You don't have direct access to God. The saints do. God's mother does. The son of God's mother does. But you do not. So you pray to them, and it's no different. And here's how we see this play out. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people come up to me, Jason, I really need a pastor to pray for me. Well, why? Because you're the pastor. My prayers are no more righteous than yours. This is I, I have a job. This is my position, but it is not my identity. You have the exact same authority in Christ that I do. It has nothing to do because I have a, a degree or initials at the end of my name. It has nothing to do with the title. It's the reason why I'm, pa- I'm Jason, one of the pastors. I am not Pastor Jason. I am Jason, who happens to be a pastor. My authority is found in Jesus, not in my title. Now here's why this matters. Too many of you don't think you can pray. That's a remnant of Catholic theology. You think that you need somebody else besides you or your close friends. You need someone in a position of authority to pray. You do not because you have access to the Son. So Luther prays and he says, if you deliver me, I'll become, I'll leave, I'll leave being a lawyer. I'll become a monk. He becomes a monk. But he still has this crippling anxiety about God's wrath. I've talked to many of you in this room who have anxiety about God's wrath. You're afraid that God is disappointed in you, ashamed of you, that you've not done enough. I hear it all the time. I've met people who are so downcast because in their mind, they see God as this wrathful, vengeful God that's waiting to strike you down. How many times have I heard somebody say, Jason, you don't want me stepping into church because it'll burn the building down. Man, that is the wrong view of God. Luther, as he was rising up in the Catholic Church, was still deeply terrified and was known to spend days in isolation praying to God, begging God for mercy and forgiveness because he didn't understand that God loves him. So now here's the thing. When somebody dies and they haven't dealt with all their sin, they haven't done, They maybe they've done communion, maybe they got baptized, they've done confession, but what happens if you confessed or you missed confession before you die. Well, now you have this massive debt to pay and that debt is worked off in purgatory. Purgatory is a middle ground place. And Luther, again, sees this. And again, had no issue with this at first until the institution of indulgences, which we talked about last week. Indulgences where the Pope Leo X believed that you could pay down the debt in heaven and he used an indulgence. And indulgences was essentially this. Pay the church money, and we'll wipe off part of the debt in purgatory so you can get to heaven faster. Now imagine people who are deeply fearful of God, do not believe that God, they believe God loves them in the sense like, you know, well, he's supposed to love us. It says God loved the world, but it doesn't mean he actually wants a relationship with me and he has to deal with this unrighteousness, the, the moral and corruptibility of all of us. And Luther's seeing people who are trying to pay their way into heaven. Instead of trusting in Jesus, they're trusting in the financial means. But what happens when you don't have money? Most people were poor. Very few people had access to that kind of wealth. Now, if you don't satisfy the requirement for heaven, you're going to spend maybe centuries in purgatory to pay down the debt. So that suffering is what does it. One Catholic teaching is that Mary and the apostles had done so much good that they had built up a mass treasury of merits. It's called the treasury of the church. I kind of picture Scrooge McDuck, like, diving into the treasury of the church. He's like, "Woohoo, merits! You know, like, that's what—that's— Jeez Louise, you people are killing me. <laughs> Catholic tradition teaches that—sometimes called the, the, the treasury of the church— Pope Leo X wanted to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica and he had the treasury of the church, which was the abundance of the merits by Mary and the apostles and the saints beforehand. So he decided to sell these merits available to the church with the promise that if you paid money, they would apply the merits given to Mary, left over from Mary or the apostles, would now be given to you. That sounds interesting enough. Now, this got luther doing what all christians should do especially the priests and especially the pope in his day and quite frankly it should make all of us do it made him go to his bible instead of going to the pope instead of going to catholic teaching or reading the newest blog he went right to the source because he believed the bible is god's word so what does the bible have to say about indulgences the treasury of the church what does the the bible have to say about purgatory doesn't matter what the pope says or church tradition but what does god's word say sola scriptura and this added fuel to the fire within luther because as he began to pour over god's word he started seeing some incongruities some things weren't lining up now there was one priest a guy named john tetzel john or johann tetzel we pronounce it john johann tetzel he went from town to town using guilt and fear to manipulate people into buying indulgences this is what he was known for saying listen to these words Listen to the voices of your dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment, and you can redeem us for only a pittance. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Now, again, they don't have access to God's word. This is all they know, and so Luther hears this, and then he would end with a little ditty, a little song. Ready for this? As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther got word of this abuse, and it infuriated him. It's what led to the 95 Thesis. Could you imagine if this is how we handled giving in the church today? Some of you here think the church is only about money, and I want you to hear this. There's a reason why you think that, because historically the church has been about money. But a healthy church, a Jesus-centered, gospel-believing church, is not about money. Does money matter? Yes, it does. But let's be clear, there's a total difference between tithing. Tithing is an act of worship and surrender. It is not tied to fear. It's not tied to your salvation. It's tied to your obedience. And so we have to talk about tithing, but it is not in any way connected to your salvation. You can't give enough money to get to heaven. Jesus gets you to heaven. That's it. This is also why I don't know what anybody gives. I don't want to know what you give because I never want to be a question. Jason only cares about this person because they give a lot of money. I have no clue. I said this last week. You give a million dollars, and I'd see that and go, praise the Lord, someone gave a million dollars. If you're waiting for a thank you, you're not going to get it from me because I don't know who did it. So if you won the lottery, (laughs) I might know it was you if there's a big check and your name's all over. But I don't want to know. And, I, and there's a reason for this because, again, I think how we handle money matters. And Luther saw an abuse around money. Tithing and giving should never be connected to shame, guilt, and certainly not salvation. This awakens something in Luther. And so he goes to God's word and he sees this is not right. We need to be reformed. We need to change. We need to go to God's word. And it sparked what is today's topic, solus Christus, Christ alone. Everybody say Christ alone. See, the Roman Catholic Church believes we are saved by Christ. However, they do not believe we are saved by Christ alone. They teach that we need all these other things to make sure we get to heaven. Jesus opened the door. He began the process. The whole hope of the gospel is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was enough. That is the central theme of the gospel. That's it. The central theme of the gospel is not that Jesus began and paved the way. It is, in Jesus he is enough. And as Luther and the early for- reformers read and reread the gospels in Greek, the original language, instead of Latin, which was a translation of that, they began to see that when Paul declared the Christian righteous, it was not saying they were morally perfect. Rather, they, they inherited a righteousness from God. They were declared righteous. Not because of what they did, but because of what Jesus did. Now, the Catholics say, again, our Catholic teaching says, to be righteous means to be morally perfect. How, hello, obviously, none of us are morally perfect. I became a Christian, and guess what? I wasn't morally perfect. I didn't instantly go, I believe in Jesus. Hey, I'm a better person. No, I was a work in progress, and I still am. So are you. And that's a major praise God. Instead, it's more of a legal declaration. It's like a judge saying, not guilty. That's it that you are secure and safe. So where does our righteousness come from? Well, Jesus, but how and why? See, when Adam, the first man, the first creation, and Eve, when they sinned, his sin was essentially transferred to all humanity. We fell underneath the umbrella of Adam. His sin affected and, and infected all of us. And again, sin is not a behavior problem, but a heart and mind problem. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because in your heart, you're a sinner. In your heart, you want to be God. You want to be Savior. I want to be Savior. That's the problem. We sin because in our hearts, we are sinners. Luther read Paul's words, and there were several scriptures that Luther went to, and they began to open his eyes, and he went, We got it wrong. We missed the boat. This is one of them. Romans 3. I don't know what that popping noise is. I apologize. There is no one righteous, not even one. This is Romans 3. Romans 3. There is no one who understands. I didn't know Katy Perry was here. Oh! You know what? I'm just going to do this. I'm just not going to move. All right. <laughs> Can I grab it? An- We're good. That. Thank you to our sound people who are paying attention and are like, wow, Jason, stop that. That's by me. By the way, that's on me. That's not on them. Everything that just took place. Thank you. I got you, boo. She's not my boo. My boo's back there. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All, not some. Not just non-Christians. All of us have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All. Luther read this and went, wait, wait. I'm not righteous, therefore I can't do righteous things. So if Paul's words are true, then this means what Rome had been preaching could not be true if God's word is true. It's either God's word or it's not. And if it's not, then we can't trust God's word. And we trust God's word, and God's word just said, hey, we're all guilty. Therefore, no amount of good deeds can make you right with God. There's no such thing as infusion with grace through baptism or communion or confession and reconciliation. Those things do not make you righteous before the Lord. They keep you healthy before the Lord. And I'm going to explain the difference between baptism and communion. Ephesians 2 said this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And because of our sin without Christ, you and I are dead in sin. I want you to hear this. If you're not a Christian, without Christ, you are dead in your sin. You are walking around in life spiritually, Dead, and there's a reason now. The problem is, some of you are like, Jason, but I've got a good life, my marriage is good, my job is good, I got a lot of money in the bank account, I have 2.5 children, I've got a six bedroom house, I got two cars. Someone caught that, that was good. And, And here's the thing you can be good in the world standing and be spiritually bankrupt from the Lord. And so, if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear this, and if you are a Christian, this is why you praise God. Because in Romans 6.23 it says this, For the wages of our sin is death, but the gift, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not the gift of the church, not the gift of communion, not the gift of baptism. The gift of Jesus is eternal life. That is where our hope comes so Now Now imagine, imagine for a moment being taught your entire life that yes, the gift is there, but you have to earn the gift. Is it a gift anymore? No, it's a payment. The gift matters. Jesus is Savior. He forgives you for your sins, at least the ones—now, again, in Catholicism, they believe Jesus is Savior. He forgives you for your sin, at least the ones before your baptism, and the ones you confess. And when you do things to satisfy your guilt, whether it be Hail Mary's or whatever it is, then you're getting closer to heaven. But none of us—how many of you have sins that you forgot about? Come on, let's be honest. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? I love Lee Nagel's like, that's me. We all have sins that we do not confess, so therefore you're going to die, but you're not dying righteous, so you've got to go to purgatory. His death was not enough to make you righteous, according to Catholicism. They still believe he's Savior. So when you'll die, you'll probably have to suffer to make up for it. This led to a new reading of Scripture, new to to Luther's eyes. He began to see things differently. See, Jesus' life and death, his sacrifice, is the grace gift for eternal life. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to partake in communion or go to confession to, or do acts of service to get to heaven. We still believe in baptism. We still believe in communion. We still believe in confession because Jesus taught us to do those things. And there's a reason. Because one of our most powerful statements, one of the most powerful statements Jesus ever made was on the cross, and you're going to be familiar with it. Before he died, with his arms, his hands pierced, he declared this, it is finished. Now, here's what you don't know. In Greek, the word, that phrase, it is finished, is actually one word, to tetelestai. Everybody say to tetelestai. <laughs> this is so cool. Check it out. Tetelestai was a word used when you paid a note in full. It literally means paid in full. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't actually say it is finished. He said it's paid in full. There's no debt. The debt is done. Which, if that's true, guess what? Purgatory doesn't exist. Because why do you have to have purgatory to pay down debt if there's no debt? You don't. You don't need to go to a priest to go to confession. Now, you still need to go to church. That's health. That's about spiritual health. It's the community of God. You don't have to do all those things because Jesus paid it in full. For you, for me, it is paid in full. Everybody say, paid in full. Paid in full. It is paid in full. to tell sty These words rang in Luther's ears and all of a sudden imagine he's going wait a second why do we have indulgences this is why indulgences are evil it's not it's not about forgiveness it's about money you don't need to pay to have your sins forgiven in purgatory because it's already been paid You want to know why we believe in solus Christus Christ alone? Because if Jesus' death did not accomplish the task of our full and total forgiveness and righteousness, then Christianity is no different than any other religion in the world. It's not. If we need to pay our debts off through merits then we might as well be Buddhist or Hindu or Islam or Mormon or Jehovah Witness or or Scientology or Jainism or Baha'i. I I had a whole list, but we don't have time to go through them. Each, every single one of the religions in the world, the only religion that preaches that a man became flesh, that God became flesh and died so that we wouldn't have to, that he came to us, we don't go to him. His debt paid at all is Christianity. Every other religion preaches something different. Jesus came to show us a different way. This is also why the the mountain view of God, that all religions lead to heaven, that can't possibly be true because one, that would make God a liar. God can't tell these people, do this and you get to heaven and then you do this and that's contradictory. No, but imagine this. Imagine you're a, a Muslim and you've been told that Jesus was a good prophet, but he's not God. And if you die, particularly if you die in martyrdom, if you die and you go to heaven and there in heaven is not Muhammad, but Jesus you're going to be really disappointed. There's a reason why we believe that Jesus Christ is alone, and it's one thing, the resurrection. That's it. What separates Jesus from everyone else is Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you might think that's intolerant. I didn't say it. Jesus did. And our faith is found in Christ alone. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Here's what I want to leave you with. God's kingdom is where Jesus alone is king. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not me, not you, not Martin Luther, not the Pope, not Tom Cruise. (laughs) Jesus alone is king. Other religions don't want a heaven where Jesus is king. And guess what? God is a gracious God and he'll give you exactly what you want. He'll give you a reality in eternity where he is not king and that's called hell. We believe in Christ alone. Nothing Nothing can save us but Christ. And so here's the challenge, the invitation I want to give to you. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to do something brave, okay? Everybody close your eyes, and I don't mean this to sound hokey, but I'm going to ask you to be brave for a moment. This morning, if you're realizing that you need Christ alone, that you want to surrender your life to Christ, would you raise your hand for me? If you've never received Christ before, if you've never followed Jesus, I'm begging you to the King, to Christ alone. Would you pray this prayer with me? And I want to invite all of everyone to pray this with me because it's a prayer of surrender. Just repeat after me, Lord Jesus, it's in you alone. My faith is in you alone. My hope is in you alone. Thank you that you've done enough. I give you my hands. I give you my feet. I give you all of me. Now help me to live that way. You are my king. And I worship you alone. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said. We're going to come and take our tithes and offerings and worship. When you're ready, let's come and just continue to worship the